The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Well, good morning. It's good to be together this second Sunday of Advent as we look at God's Word. My name is Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new, we're especially glad you're here with us. And if you're watching online, we would encourage you to join us. And especially if you're in the Twin Cities, to come here in person. There's nothing quite like gathering with the church. I I think for those who have to stay home, uh, you know, it's a It's a gift, but there is no replacement for gathering together as the people of God. So we do invite you to join us here in person. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would shine forth from your word so that we would see Jesus more clearly. If we would get a greater glimpse of your glory and majesty and beauty I believe that we will be changed. So come now, Father, in the power of your spirit and help us to see the glory of your son for our joy and for his everlasting glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. One of the difficult realities of Christmas with all of the presents and joy and family gatherings and meals and decorations and everything exciting is that it all takes place in the midst of a broken world. Our world is full of sin and suffering and the schemes of Satan. And some of us have walked in this morning feeling that all the more acutely than ever. Let let me just highlight some of the distressing realities of our day. People are perishing without Jesus every single day around the world. There's an estimated 40 million victims of human trafficking exploited for labor or for marriage. That's more than the population of the state of Minnesota. Since Roe versus Wade was passed in 1973, it's estimated that 60 million babies have been killed by abortion. That would be twice the population of Texas. On a personal level, many of us have walked in this morning dealing with trials and suffering and struggles that we think, I I can't do it. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to turn to because these things feel so overwhelming that we we feel like we're almost drowning under the weight of these burdens this morning. We live in a broken world that is afflicted with sin and suffering. For some of us, it's physical and mental illness. For others, it's forced unemployment recently. Or a multitude of things that weigh heavy on our hearts and minds. And the sadness of living in a broken world is compounded by the fact that some love to do evil in our world. It's not just, you know, everyone's trying to do their best and yet there's brokenness. It's some delight in evil itself. Hear what the Apostle Paul says to Timothy. He writes this in 2 Timothy. He says, for people, this is in the last days which we're living in, 
For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. And the surprising note about that is that that's just a normal Tuesday on Twitter and Facebook. That, that's not unusual in the world in which we live. We live in a world of sin and suffering. And so this morning I want to ask one very simple question and answer it very simply with an answer that is your typical Sunday school answer. Where is our hope this morning? And our hope should be in Jesus. Where's our hope? For some, our hope lies in the government, fixing all of our problems. Maybe this multi-trillion dollar package that's in the Senate or the House, it, you know, that, that'll really fix things. Or some, our hope is in medical innovation or experimental treatments. Some of our hope is in technology and artificial intelligence, and it'll make life so much easier. Cryptocurrency. Some... Our hope is in our personal circumstances changing. If only I could get more, you name it, more money, more time, more control, then I would finally be happy. But the message of Isaiah 9 this morning, the passage we just read, is that our hope is found in the light that has broken into the darkness. If you were here last week, you'll remember that Isaiah is this nation in crisis, the nation of Judah in crisis. And Isaiah, who's an Old Testament prophet about six to seven hundred years prior to the birth of Jesus, he, he gives these prophecies of judgment to this nation. And yet within those prophecies are these glimmers of hope. And this morning we get another glimmer of hope. And the main point of our passage is very simple. Jesus is coming and has come. The light has broken into the darkness. God is not yet done. No matter how broken our world gets, no matter how much sin is present, no matter how much suffering is present in your life this morning, God is not yet done. The light has broken into the darkness. So my aim this morning is that we would see the beauty and the light of Christ more clearly this morning. That we would behold the beauty and the majesty of Jesus. It's a little bit like this. Uh, when you eat a dish that has a little too much garlic, it, you, you, your breath smells like garlic. If you were the cook, your fingers smell like garlic. If you burp, you know, you're like, ooh, I had that meal, right? You, you taste the garlic. And, and this morning, as we ingest hope, my prayer is that it would flavor, it would be the aroma that others catch from us. Not of garlic, but that it would spill over into our lips in conversation. So instead of just lamenting everything going on in our world, and you name it, it's a long list of things you could lament in our world. I can't believe so-and-so said, did, whatever. But that hope 
would be seen on our faces, that it would be communicated in our demeanors as we interact with others, that it would overflow into our lips and conversations, and that people would catch the aroma of hope in the people of God, and that they would be pointed to the hope of the nations. That's what I want this morning. So, why don't you turn with me in your Bible, if you're not there already, in Isaiah 9. So God is bringing judgment to Judah because King Ahaz refused to trust in God. But we get this glimmer of hope in the midst of this prophecy of judgment. And and this section breaks down into two main sections. What is God doing in verses 2 and 3? And then how is God going to do it? Verses 4 to 7. So what is God doing? And then how is God going to do it? So what is God doing? That's what we'll look at first. And look with me at verses 2 and 3. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. In these opening two verses, we see that the light breaks into the darkness, and then in verse 4, or verse 3, we get these four repeating phrases of joy and rejoicing and gladness, and then joy once again. So what's God doing here? In these opening verses, we get this royal birth announcement of hope and deliverance and of a future. So Judah and King Ahaz have just been given the devastating news that because you refused to trust God in light of Israel and Syria coming to you, and you looked to the Assyrians instead of trusting in Yahweh, you too are going to be judged by God. And and the punishment of Assyria will fall upon you. And yet he gives this word of hope in the midst of this. That it's not all going to be bad news. And he uses three images of light, harvest, and victory. So the first image is that of light. And we see this throughout the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he said, let there be light. And then all the way in Revelation, we see that there will be no more need for sun because the light of Jesus will shine forth. And throughout the scriptures, it's this pervasive image of God's presence of his power. And then we get passages like 2 Samuel twenty-two twenty-nine: For you, O Lord, are my lamp, and my God lightens my darkness. Or Psalm 27, 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? So these Old Testament passages point to God's presence is often likened to physical light. But then Jesus comes, and then John 1, 9, he says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. That's what Isaiah is saying. And then Jesus himself takes this imagery, and he says in John 8, verse 12, Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am what? The light of the world. That's right. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So this passage prophesies and points forward to when Jesus would come into the world and bring spiritual illumination unlike any other. Jesus will reveal God the Father himself, reveal what is true, and bring illumination to everything else in the world. 
Now, consider the present spiritual darkness of what they're living in. Punishment is coming. Judgment is coming. We have an evil king who does not trust in God. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And good and evil kings would come and go. Prophets would come and go. But now we're being told that this ray of hope is breaking into the darkness. Hear hear what C.S. Lewis says about why he believes in Christianity and how he uses the imagery of light. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Do you see that? He compares Christianity or trusting in Christ with the sun rising because it's not only that I can see the sun in the sky and say that's the sun, but through the light from the sun, I can see everything else and I can make sense of the world in which I live. And that's how Jesus functions in our world today. He makes sense of all that we see, including the brokenness and the suffering of our world. Jesus comes in and brings light. Imagine the joy of seeing the sun after dwelling in darkness. Most of us don't experience this. But in the city of Barrow, Alaska, 330 miles north of the Arctic Circle, because of the tilt of the earth and the rotation of the sun, they get 67 days of uninterrupted darkness. Think about that two whole months. It's not just that the sun doesn't come out like Minnesota or Seattle or whatever it is. It's that it's pitch black for two plus months. I just get sad and depressed thinking about it. We thought we were hardy. These people in Barrow, Alaska are truly hardy. Now, imagine on that 68th day, When the sky begins to lighten and you see the sun just begin to peak over the horizon. And you think, it's back! Circadian rhythms can go back to normal. Vitamin D, finally. I don't have to be sad and depressed anymore. The greenery is going to start growing. I can feel the warmth of the sun on my face once again. Now imagine it's not just 67 days but it's been hundreds of years, generations of darkness. And you think, when? When is the light going to dawn? When will there be an end to the suffering and sin and pain? When will there be hope once again? When? That's what's taking place here in Isaiah. He's foreshadowing. Yes, you're in the second day of 67 days of darkness, but it's going to come. The light will indeed dawn once again. So what's God doing here? He's announcing that even in the midst of judgment, even in the midst of punishment, that there is this glimmer of hope. And it's not just a glimmer. It's going to become a full-born blast of light that will break into the world for all to see. In the midst of deep darkness and severe grief and great tragedy, the sun, S-O-N, will rise. And so for this, for us this morning, what are the griefs and tragedies that you're facing? Maybe the whittling away of your own body, 
maybe relationships, uncertainty, and fear. Like we said last week, God is with us and there's hope rising. With Jesus, we are never hopeless. God is still on the move and Jesus is working. The second image he gives is that of harvest. Uh, I don't know, how many farmers do we have in the room? Maybe one, two. Uh, I've never farmed. But we can imagine how hard that daily back-breaking labor is. The cows never go on vacation, right? They always need to be fed. They always need to be milked. And the uncertainty of the weather and all of it finally comes to fruition in one moment at the harvest. So you see that. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. So it'd be like some of us, we we get our entire paycheck in one day and we work on 100% commission and we only get paid that one time a year in one lump sum payment and only if our company did well. And, And you could imagine how scary and frightening that would be. What if I get fired just prior to that one day? Or what if the company tanks or whatever else? And, and, but imagine the relief, the joy, the excitement when it finally comes in. And, and that's what he, he is trying to show us here. As with the harvest, we get all of our supplies for food and crops to sell and resources to sustain us for the rest of the year in that one moment. Joy, unspeakable joy in that singular moment. And then look with me at verse three again. As they are glad when they divide the spoil. This third image is of victory after a battle or of war. If you prevail, if you win, you get to divide the spoil. So this image captures this picture of no more battle, no more wars, no more burying husbands and sons, but finally we get to partake of the spoils and divide it because there's such an abundance now. So what what God is trying to describe here is that there is an ushering in of unprecedented hope for the people, and all of it is pointing to the person and work of Jesus. So what is God doing? God is announcing here in Isaiah 9, that hope is coming. Not just Emmanuel, God with us, but he puts more flesh on the bones. And he says, look at what he's going to usher in. He's going to be like light in the midst of darkness, and he's going to bring unspeakable joy to his people forever. Hope is on the horizon. Light is dawning. Joy is breaking in. It's a little bit like you you get home and, and... You open the door and you smell it. It's the scent of fresh baked chocolate chip cookies or fresh baked bread or meat on the grill. Probably not grilling indoors, but you get the picture. And you think, yeah, I can't wait. I'm salivating just thinking about it. There's this aroma that fills the home. People have candles, right, that mimic chocolate chip cookies. So when you sell your house, you can burn that candle so people get that home feeling when they walk into your home. It's this picture of hope has just begun to dawn. And and Isaiah is painting this picture for us of a foretaste of what is to come. God is not yet done. And this morning, be reminded 
despite the darkness of the world, despite the divisions at work in our families, despite all the weakness and frailty and sin and suffering, there is hope, and that hope is found in Jesus. So this leads us to our second question. So what is God doing? He's ushering in unspeakable joy as the light breaks into the darkness and giving us hope. So how is he going to do it? How is God bringing us hope and joy? Well, look at verse 4 to 7. There's this building crescendo taking place. He continues to explain how God is going to do it, and he gives us three things. Deliverance in verse 4, peace in verse 5, and then a new king who will be Jesus in verse 6 and 7. And you can see the four in 4, 5, and 6. Each of them begin with four, F-O-R. And so he's giving us the reasons for this joy and hope that's breaking in. And the first thing we see in verse 4, we get this picture of deliverance with two major events in the life of Israel. We get the exodus and we get God's deliverance at Midian. So if you read the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you're supposed to immediately think Egypt. When people constantly had burden upon burden upon burden under the hand of Pharaoh and they were enslaved and the word oppressors is nearly the same as taskmaster, which we see again and again in the story of the Exodus. And he's saying, that the joy that we're going to experience is like that of that day because God is bringing deliverance about. He's going to remove the enslavement, the burdens, and the oppressors like in the days of Exodus. Even though Israel isn't currently enslaved, they're going to soon be exiled and there's going to be another six, seven hundred years where they're waiting for the hope and for the light to break in. And he's saying, When it comes, it's going to be like a second exodus. It's going to be that amazing and glorious. The deliverance that God is working for us. That we're not going to look to Assyria, but God is working for us in a deliverance that's going to make the deliverance of the exodus pale in comparison. The second thing is as on the day of Midian at the end of verse 4. Well, what happened on Midian. What he's doing here is he's, it would be a little bit like if we said we were shell-shocked like on the day of 9-11. And everyone would know what you're talking about, except for the young children. But everybody else, or actually college students now, but you get it. It, it was long ago. But, we, we, you know, if you say we're, we were shell-shocked like on 9-11, everyone sort of gets it. Like, oh yeah, we were stunned, speechless, did not know what was going on. And he says, Midian, and everyone should call to mind Judges 6 and 7. And Judges 6, 1 says, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. So punishment for seven years. But then God works what? This great deliverance through Gideon. And Gideon puts out the fleece and pulls in the fleece. And, and, and you know the story. And then he says, you got too many people, so we're going to whittle it down to 300. And so this little army of 300 would defeat 15,000. And so God delivers by few. And he says, the way God is ushering in hope and joy is that he's going to bring about glorious, glorious deliverance. But he's going to do so through very few. Not through maybe a mighty arm like through the Exodus, but he's going to release their burdens, demolish the oppressors, but he's going to do it through the humility of a child. 
that is coming through Jesus being born as a baby. God is delivering his people. In verse 5, look at verse 5. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So not only is he bringing deliverance and not only is he bringing peace now. That's what he's bringing. This picture that's being painted for us is this giant bonfire where all the instruments of war, all the uniforms of war, like boots and and garments rolled in blood, will be thrown into this massive bonfire and burned because we won't need it anymore. It would be like us here in America saying, boy, we've had so much peace and we anticipate so much peace for the the coming hundreds of years that we're going to take all of our fighter jets and nuclear weapons and tanks and ammunition and we're just going to bring it into the middle of Utah and and melt it down and, and make, I don't know, jewelry out of it because we just won't need it anymore. It's unthinkable. Let's not do that. But, but the, the picture is a day is coming when such pervasive peace is taking place that you'll just say, well, we don't need any of it anymore. Home security systems, who needs it? There's so much pervasive peace taking place in the world. So you begin to see this growing crescendo that's building and building and building. He's saying, light's going to break into the darkness. You're going to have unspeakable joy like at the harvest, and you're going to divide the spoil of victory. And God is bringing great, glorious deliverance. And we're going to have peace. And we think, how is something so great, something so wonderful, possibly going to happen? And then he gives us some of the most stunning language in all of the Bible. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. If you read that passage and you don't get goosebumps, you're doing something wrong. Look how amazing it is that God is ushering in his kingdom. This oracle climaxes in this royal announcement of the birth of a son that would reign forever. And what does he tell us about this son? He tells us that he's going to be born. His role in government, his, the government shall be upon his shoulder. It tells us of his names and of his reign. There will be no end. And then we're going to be reassured of God's promise that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So notice the repetition of the word government. He uses this multiple times. And Jesus is coming into the world to establish a kingdom that will be unlike any administration before it. Prior to this, kings would come and kings would go. And in the middle of that, there would constantly be instability. 
And yet this coming kingdom will be characterized by justice and righteousness and peace that will never end. And then he gives us the four names of God in six. Four names for Jesus. Wonderful counselor. What does that mean? It means this extraordinary wisdom and wise counsel. So not only will Jesus come and and rule and reign, but he's going to be wise unlike any other. He will not be like all these evil kings, like King Ahaz and all the ones to come that ultimately fail and fall short, but there will be perfect wisdom in this king. And not only will he rule justly, but his rule will be wonderful. It will bring about the flourishing of the nation. Secondly, we see that he's a mighty God. So not only is he a wonderful counselor, he doesn't just have good ideas and good intentions, but powerless to actually execute on them. But he's a mighty God, a strong hand, and he will disarm his enemies and rule and bring about this glorious kingdom. And then we see that he's an everlasting father. This could be translated as father of eternity, meaning not to be confused, the, the father and the son, the, the second and the first and the second persons of the Godhead, but rather that he is the one who begins this kingdom and will cause it to be everlasting. Like in Second Samuel, this promise to David, Second Samuel seven sixteen, your throne shall be established forever. So Jesus is coming into the world and he's going to establish this kingdom that is unlike all the kingdoms from before. And this is a kingdom that will never come to an end. And lastly, he's the prince of peace. These are the conditions that are brought with his birth. Peace means that there are no more wars, no more battles, no more rumors of war, no more burying husbands and sons after they come home in a box, no more drafts, no more sieges, no more oppression, rest from enemies, the ceasing of all war. King David couldn't bring this, but Jesus will bring perfect peace forever. And then verse 7 tells us, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. So no one or nothing, no one or anything can undermine his rule and reign. No coup, no uprising, no rebellion. Isaiah is clearly talking about Jesus' end time rule and reign, where Jesus will come back and subdue all of his enemies once and for all and rule and reign forever. But this kingdom has already begun, and that is why we can have hope this morning. Unlike Isaiah's audience and readers. They were looking forward another five, six, seven hundred years, waiting in anticipation for when is it coming? When is this peace going to come? And Jesus has come. And so we look backward and we say, we now have the foretaste, the beginning of this peace. And even though it's not yet perfect peace in our world, we can have perfect peace with God the Father, reconciled and redeemed. And then he says, the Lord, the zeal of the Lord will do this. God has ushered in deliverance by forgiving sins so that we might have peace and can walk in his light. So I want us to see one last thing in this passage. Did you notice 
that almost all of it is written in the past tense. So, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Or verse 6, for to us a child is born, not will be born, but is born. To us a son is given. Why? Well, it's because all of this was written in the prophetic perfect tense. Meaning that Isaiah goes forward and looks backward and says, it's so sure, it's so guaranteed, it's almost like it's already been done. When Isaiah writes this, it won't be done for another hundred, couple hundred years. And yet he says, it's so sure that it's almost like it's already taken place because this is what God will do. And he finally reveals that at the end of verse 7. The zeal of the Lord will do this. It hasn't happened yet. He will do this. And now we know he has done it in the person and work of Jesus. Jesus Christ has come. He's broken into the world. And that's why we can have hope this morning. And so for those who are unfamiliar with Jesus, who aren't following him this morning. Maybe you're watching online and you're saying, I'm looking into these things and, you know, Christmas time, maybe it's good if I go to church or something. We want you to hear that even in the midst of this gloomy, broken world full of suffering, that there is hope, that light will dawn in the morning. And that light and that hope has arrived for us in the person and work of Jesus. He's come and forgiven us of our sins if we would only trust and believe in him. He's dealing with brokenness at its most foundational level, which is our hearts. Because we're sinners and we do not do what is right. And, And because of that, out of the sinful heart, all sorts of evil pervade our society. And Jesus has come to deal with that fundamental problem of our sin, that we cannot please God. We do not obey him. Even if we tried as hard as we could try, we could not make ourselves right with him. And he's come to deliver us from this bondage that we're in, to bring deliverance and joy and freedom, that we can be free of the brokenness, of the sin that indwells so deeply. And so this morning, we want you to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. If you don't know him, someone next to you would be glad, more than glad. They would count it a privilege to share more with you or to study the Bible with you this week. For all of us, the darkness shines into the midst of a broken world. And so Christmas is worth celebrating. Not because we get to overeat. Not because there's decorations. Not because we get a few extra days off. Not because we give and receive presents. Christmas is hopeful because of the hope of the nations and the hope of the world that Jesus Christ has come into the world. And my prayer for us this morning is that hope would rise up in our hearts once again. That we would, with wonder, like a small child on Christmas morning that says, Ooh, lights! Ooh, a tree! Ooh, presents! And they just can't contain their excitement and energy. That we would all become a little bit more childlike. That we would put aside the cynicism. Oh, I still got to pay the bills on Monday. 
And that we would see the incarnation with fresh wonder. Oh, look at the glorious Savior that has broken into the world and brought his light and brought everlasting hope and peace. And so despite your sin and your failures and your falling short and your struggles, here in no uncertain terms, God is not yet done. He's not done with you. He's not done with your loved ones. He's not done. Despite the brokenness around you and your family and friends and in our world, here in no uncertain terms, that light will dawn. You might be in the 67th day in Barrow, Alaska, and the 68th day is coming. Despite the polarization and division in our world, here in no uncertain terms, that Jesus will rule and reign with justice and righteousness forever. And despite your fears and anxieties of the future, the zeal of the Lord will do this. So God's not done. Jesus is on the move right now and he tends to fill our hearts with fresh reservoirs of hope so that it would lead us to worship and to awe and to a deeper gratitude. And, and as he does, may the aroma of Christ and may the aroma of the hope of Christ, may the aroma of the glory of Christ flow from us into a world still dwelling in deep darkness. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would do what we cannot do, which is that you would fill our hearts with hope in seeing the beauty and the majesty of Jesus once again. And then we pray that you would use that indwelling hope in our hearts to bring about great joy in the lives of those around us, that many this Christmas would discover that hope is found in Jesus. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.